McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Hamburglar, the time is yours. Bravo, bravo. He said, these are McDonald's best burgers ever. And then, can I keep them? And then he just grabbed them and ran away. Brabble. Now get a Big Mac or double cheeseburger for two bucks in the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Must opt into rewards. Visit McD app for details. Available at most restaurants in this area. Comparison of McDonald's classic burgers to prior burgers. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The process to be diagnosed as someone who's got ADHD, it's a long process because as we know, the waiting lists are either too long. So we're talking about a two-year wait on the NHS waiting list on average. Just seeing how somebody could be so unwell at the start and through obviously medication, Mm. therapy, and just input from the whole multidisciplinary team, how they could get to a better place. But the scariest part for me was going onto the wings, getting to know them and getting to know their history, the type of crime they committed. There were a lot of people who did not have any diagnosis and I saw a lot of that underlying stuff that hadn't really been looked at before mm. coming into prison right. a lot of the time which led them to come to prison really? and committing their crime and that's when I started to realize just what was going on mm. in the criminal justice system and the lack of you're not defined by where you, where you come from yeah. and I think that's a big message that I always yeah. want to tell people like like you have to be able to be uncomfortable yeah. like be comfortable with being uncomfortable When you grow up in ends, you don't realise it when you're confident, but you have an audacity to do things that ordinarily most people wouldn't be able to do. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. We've got special guests in the building. Jenny, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm warmer now. Yeah? So thank you for that, yeah. <laughs> You're feeling quite cold, right? It's freezing, <laughs> honestly. I know we're in, well, end of November. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, is this winter? Could you class this as winter? I, guess so, I don't yeah. know, yeah. So I understand, but still, I never get used to the cold. <laughs> I'm not. You're not a cold person. Mm -mm. I'm more of like maybe spring, like somewhere in the middle. Mm. I don't like it too hot either. Okay, so you don't like too hot and you don't like too cold. Yeah, I'm I'm very picky. (sighs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) Just, just right. (laughs) Oh my gosh! I mean, I don't think we even get weather like that, right? Our our weather in the UK is so extreme. It's like really, Mm. really cold. Because I, I guess it'll be cold until probably March. Yeah. And then April, a bit mild, and then pretty much summer, right? Yeah. We don't really get we like get a, a summer. full, full season. <laughs> that's true. You're right. You're right. Maybe I mean, we get like a couple of days of blazing mm. heat and then mm. that's it. And that's it. And then it's just rain, right? And it's just rain. <laughs> Typical 
UK. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. So, okay, so tell the people who is Jenny. Who is Jenny? Who mm-hmm. am I? Um, so, it's always hard to talk about myself. Um, so, I'm an occupational therapist, um, forensic mental health occupational therapist. So, essentially, I work in um, the mental health sector. So, that's in the community, in psychiatric hospitals, and also in prisons as well. So, that's mm-hmm. where the forensic comes okay. in place. Um, so that's usually my nine to five. I've more, I've recently, um, you know, taken up another role within commissioning. Mm. So higher role where you, you know, support people, um, with getting placed in different areas in London, in the right type of settings. So residential homes or secure, um, supported living and things like that. Um, but I'm sure we'll talk about that, um, later on. So that's my nine to five. And then I'm also, I guess I could call myself a speaker. It still finds it, I still find it a little bit weird to say, but yeah, I'm a speaker. I talk about mental health, um, especially mental health within the black community and also neurodiversity okay. as well. So people with various types of neurodevelopmental mm. conditions, not just autism or ADHD. There's many, many more mm. that a lot of people don't really know about. Okay. Um, so I speak on those type of topics and also consult for companies as well. And then I've got my own company that focuses on um, initial initial screening for those type of neurodevelopmental conditions. Because as we know, the waiting lists are either too long. Mm. So we're talking about maybe a two year wait on the NHS waiting list and on average. And then if you do want to go privately, usually it costs thousands of pounds. Mm. Um, so I try to sort of bridge that gap and also target communities that don't ne- necessarily get the right support in that sense, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to early diagnosis yeah. or early intervention. For wow. You do a so lot. I, I hope <laughs> Even your nine to five is a lot. I'm just like, wow, it's... like you work in that like four or five places. Mm, yeah, but it's, it's been over like you know, a series of years. Mm. Um, I've just recently come out of like working in prison full time because mm-hmm. I, yeah, it was, it was a lot. I enjoyed yeah. it, but it was very restrictive. So I wanted to come out more and, you know, now I'm doing more like community-based stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get to work from home as well, which is new. You okay. know, I used to get so jealous of my friends yeah. who were working from home. Oh my gosh. So, so when did that start happening in the work from home? Um, when I got this new job. Oh, really? Um, okay. So that was... Uh, Early this year, mm-hmm. that was early this year. Um, so I still go into like mm. hospitals and prisons to do my assessments. So I'll say it's like hybrid working. Okay. And then, um, yeah, I take up some meetings from home. And wow. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Who That's knew? Good. This could be fun. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. So, okay. Before, I definitely, you know, I'm so interested in hearing more about this and especially like the neurodiversity because I feel like that's like a conversation that we don't have. Um, much of even ADHD even ADHD I'm seeing a lot more conversation about that and I'm quite happy about that Mm -hmm. because I'm seeing that you know a lot of people may not have been diagnosed and you know things like that so it'd be good to uh, speak a little bit more about that um I guess you know starting with your story I guess where where your parents from Nigeria Nigeria okay cool both Nigeria wait do you know I always ask this but were you born there were you born here no so I was (laughs) so I was born in Germany Ah, okay. Grew That's up in Belgium for a couple of years. Oh. And then I came to the UK in 2005. Oh, wow. Okay. I've so do you, speak, do you speak German? Um, no. So I left Germany when I was like a baby. So mm. 
when I grew up in Belgium, I grew up on the Dutch side. Oh. So I speak Dutch. It's it's called Flemish, but people are like, mm, what's Flemish? So okay. I just say Dutch. <laughs> okay, so you speak Dutch. Oh, that's yeah. crazy. Just a little Dutch bit though. in Belgium? Yeah, it's split oh. into two. You've got the oh. French side and you've got the, the Dutch side. I was always thinking it was like just French in, no. in Belgium. I didn't know that they had The French Dutch side is maybe more like Brussels. Ah. Just close to What areas France. is that in Belgium that speak Dutch? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. So, yeah. I don't know. Maybe the side that's closest to the Netherlands, okay. I would say. I'm definitely going to do more research side. on yeah, that. Yeah. That's interesting. That's mad. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so you moved... You and your parents moved to the UK, right? So yeah. you grew up in the UK. Whereabouts uh, in the UK do you grow up in? So South East London. Okay, South East London. Yeah. Oh, mad. What was it, what was it like growing up in South East London? Well, I mean, when I first came here, mm. obviously I was really young. Um, I was very surprised in terms of how diverse it was because obviously the side that I mm. grew up in in Belgium, it was not diverse at all okay especially in school mm. me being um one of two of the only black people in my um my year um so when i came to the uk to london southeast london i was very surprised and i thought <laughs> goodness me what why are there so many black people you know yeah <laughs> um but you know growing up in southeast london was was fun mm. um fun in in terms of like obviously you get to meet different types of people mm. there's lots of energy um i think at the same time of course you know and it's not just in southeast london but just in london in general like you know crime and all that kind of stuff so i grew up on an estate um not there anymore but i grew up on alsbury estate which is is known to be okay. the most oh, notorious the people from around there yeah. you, you know yeah, so yeah. imagine you know I, yeah. I grew up there and obviously okay. I was never involved in in mm. anything um but you know you would see stuff and you would mm. hear about like you know criminal activity and things like that um but um yeah it's just something I thought was you know normal mm. um but I never let it sort of affect me um, growing up so my mum what was good is that my mum would always like during summer or during half-term breaks would go back to Belgium so I'd sort of be away okay. um, or I'd go to like summer school like acting classes and things like, like she just okay. wanted me to get involved in things like ballet I did tap dancing and jazz and she really put me in a lot of group activities okay. so, and clubs so. so you feel like she was the kind of like she didn't want you to be influenced about in yeah. in the area she kind of saw that and were like okay let me yeah keep you active and doing things that gotta have a positive impact exactly yeah. for me and my so I have two younger brothers as mm. well so I think it was just important for her to keep us busy and keep our minds busy as well yeah. and just away from our surroundings really yeah, yeah it's yeah. my <laughs> it's it's crazy because um yeah i, I know i know i was really very, very you know right <laughs> i know it very 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 well yeah yeah i basically kind of kind of grew up near there like grew up there because i knew people there so i kind yeah. of i kind of grew up there so i know i know what it's like and yeah like mm -hmm. you said it's it's been um it's being knocked down on the majority of it is it's gone pretty much like it's yeah it's yeah mad. yeah um yeah. But, you know, it, it's meant to be knocked down and some places mm. have been. Mm. Um, so for people who don't know, it's a bunch of high rise tower blocks, um, grey, you know, gloomy and everything. And they're not fit for purpose mm. at all. 
Um, so they had this whole demolition scheme. Mm. Um, but there's been certain delays and people are still living there in yeah. those type of conditions. Mm. Um, so it's just, it's just sad to see that nothing's really changed as much. Mm. And I've seen like even documentaries being made on it still to this day. So yeah. um, although I'm glad to not be living there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anymore, um, I still feel for people who are still there. And But then at the same time, I know that there is a community there, a good community of people who have obviously made a life there, made friends and, you know, there's culture there as well. So yeah. it's just striking that that balance. But yeah. yeah. How do you feel that like you managed to kind of excel despite like living like, you know, in Aylesbury, like Aylesbury Estate? Like how yeah. do you feel like, yeah, that happened? Um, I don't know. I, I think I was just very, I've always been a very tunnel vision in terms of like, I knew that I, I didn't want that kind of life. Mm. So, and this is why like sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of the time when I say, you know, I grew up on Alsbury Estate, they're like, mm, like you don't really look like that type. You know, I guess there's a stereotype, right? Yeah. Of, you know, how you should act and things like that but I was just very much like I don't want to do this I can see that it leads people into mm. a negative path and you know my mum she would always ask me like you know what do you want to do in the future and not necessarily putting pressure but I think she just wanted to plant seeds in my head in terms of you know we can do you can do much better than this and um yeah and I just obviously having friends on the estate and seeing what happened to them just made me want to okay. stay away from that yeah so i don't think i had any doubt in my in my head in terms of mm. you know w was i ever going to be influenced by those type yeah. of things i wasn't influenced in that sense but it definitely inf like looking back now and what i'm doing mm. as my job i think it definitely influenced you know the type of pathway that i'm on in terms of like mental health and working in criminal justice and just seeing some of the barriers that people face mm. in those type of places. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what wow. did for me. That's good. <laughs> wow. That's, a, that's amazing. And I'm, you know what? It's, it's crazy. Cause I feel like sometimes living in those kind of areas, sometimes like you say, sometimes you're like, Oh, I don't want this. I want a mm -hmm. better life for me. And then you, you fight so hard to have that better life. So it's not always bad living yeah. in these areas. Of course, like, you know, some people go like completely the the, the wrong way. And we obviously don't want that for like anybody. Wow, mm -hmm. that's crazy. So, okay. Yeah. So school-wise, right, um, were you quite into your studies at school? Yeah, like that, yeah? very much so. Um, very much into my studies. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very quiet okay. and introverted. I feel okay. like I still am maybe, yeah. you know, because I'm doing more like public things. Um, I've grown in confidence in that sense. But I was just very quiet. Um, I'd only been in the country for a couple of years. So even I could obviously I could speak English, mm. but I couldn't read or write. So I had to learn that oh. all from from scratch. Oh, yeah. in, in English? In English, okay. sorry. Okay. Um, cool. So I could in, in Dutch, but not yeah. in um, in English. But I still, I tried hard. Mm. Um, again, my mom put me in like extra curricular activities, had mm. tutors as well. Um, and yeah, so in school, I was quiet, introverted, but then I was also involved in choir, mm. our school plays. Okay. And I was definitely like, 
maybe like a teacher's pet. Like okay. that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I remember like yeah. in school, I don't know if other schools had it, but we had a merit system. Mm. Um, and essentially like you would get a merit for like good behavior, like mm-hmm. a star on yeah. your um, your diary. Um, so being the teacher's pet that I was, um, during lunchtime, I'd stay inside and I would pack up all the books in the library yeah. and, you know, try and help out the teachers and stuff. And I don't know. I, just, I don't know really why I did it, but I just wanted to help. And, mm. you know, I just, I found it fun. Wow. 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 So <laughs> yeah. were you like a, a A-star student, A-A-A student, or very close to that? Uh, maybe very close. So we yeah. had like... Um, different forms Mm. so I was I was in top set for quite a lot of things or like second set um so I was I was smart but maybe not like the smart like I knew Mm. quite a few people who were smarter than me Mm. um but yeah I was very much into my studies um you know especially the sciences but also the creative side as well I was quite creative like I did art Okay. graphic design and obviously like I said involved mm. in plays mm. um so I had a good mix how did you get down to the like psychology pathway yeah how did you get to that so I mean it's gonna sound cliche but I'd always been interested in how the mind works mm-hmm. right but I think what started it for me um in terms of psychology was there was a show I said back in the day I don't know how long that was called mm. Waterloo Road I, think I don't I've know heard if you remember Waterloo Road. Waterloo yeah, yeah, Road. That that it. was yeah. the show, yeah. um, and essentially it's based on a school in, wasn't it London somewhere in the UK, yeah. and it shows like the the lives that the students go through, the teachers, the controversy, and all that kind of stuff. And one of the episodes was an episode on how one of the students got, um, how they developed a mental health disorder mm, okay. called schizophrenia, and it was drug induced. And I just kept thinking, like, how how could somebody be hearing voices or seeing things that aren't there? Um, you know, so I think that definitely started it for me in terms of, you know, wanting to learn more about the mind and how our environment affects that. Um, maybe like where you grew up, yeah. um, the activities that you engage in and whether it's genetic. And, you know, so I, I knew that I wanted to go into like the mental health side of mm-hmm. things. Um, wasn't sure if it was going to be like to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Mm. So I was still kind of feeling it out. And I went, so in year 10, we had like work experience. Okay. So I had the opportunity to do that at King's College. And um, it was on, I don't even know what ward, some sort of physical ward. And I spoke to my um, supervisor at the time and I told them that I was interested in mental health. And right opposite was Maudsley Hospital, which is a psychiatric okay. hospital. Mm. So I spent a day in there. And I think from then on, I was like, okay, this is the area mm. that I want to get into. Wow. So it was just a matter of like going on the NHS website and seeing mm. what kind of roles wow. I felt were suited to me. Wow. So you mm. knew from quite young, actually. Yeah. 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 Like in school. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Kind of, Our school wow. was very much. So I went to Sacred Heart in Campbell. And okay. um, for those who went to Sacred Heart, you mm. know, they were very education mm-hmm. focus like mm-hmm. our um <laughs> our, te- our head teacher used to i mean looking back now it wasn't nice to say to people but you know he would say oh you don't do you want to go to the school um university of mm-hmm. mcdonald's like you know he would really be mm. very onto us about like knowing what you want to do mm-hmm. when you grow up and obviously like not everybody gets to know that 
at that age like some people change some people don't know until later on in life but I think that definitely influenced me kind of getting straight into it okay wow wow you know it was gonna <laughs> this is gonna sound very crazy <laughs> when you said sacred heart i was like what what is going on what? that is my school yeah i went to that school no way yeah yeah, I went <laughs> to sacred heart, yeah. what yeah yeah so yeah. do you know the head teacher i'm talking about then <laughs> uh, the person when it's gonna sound uh, was he biracial it might have changed because I went, I went, yeah. I'm, I'm revealing my age. I went between 2000 and 2005. Okay. Yeah. I don't know when you so started, but. We can talk about yeah, it offline. I don't want to be revealing people's personal <laughs> but details. But I guess, the, I guess you probably understand the culture in terms of yeah, how the serious. school was. They were, yes, they were very they serious. Were very serious. And they, we, to be honest, if you think about it, I always think about it. That's why they said it was the best school in Southern because we had, like you have all types of people. You have very smart very smart kids but then you have people who have potential but they're very disruptive mm -hmm. and they were able to manage that and very obviously there was incidents happen but if i'm talking about like in terms of my whole school because i was only i was there for f up until year nine i went to nigeria for year 10 and i came back okay um not that many incidents happen if i'm mm -hmm. being honest um, but yeah, it was a it was a good school. It was a good school. Yeah, it was a very very good, good school. Fond <laughs> memories, fond <laughs> memories. Okay, so you kind of decided from like young mm -hmm. um, that you wanted to go down that trajectory. So did you end up going to university to to study? Yeah, yeah. yeah I went to university. Um, I went to Oxford Brookes University, and I st I studied occupational therapy. Okay. Occupational um, therapy. To okay. become an occupational, occupational therapist. therapist. Okay. Um, cool. But I guess with occupational therapy you you're dual trained okay so that means that you're trained in the physical health side of things mm -hmm. and the mental health side okay um, that? like what's the, what's the physical i guess they they wanted us to well that's uh, they want us to kind of know about everything like holistically okay. and then once you've completed your degree mm -hmm. you can then choose what area you want to work in okay um and to practice as an occupational therapist mm -hmm. you do have to to a certain degree depending on where you want to work but mm. in mental health mm. have some knowledge on like the anatomy physiology yeah. side of things wow. um so even our placements i did a placement on a neurology and stroke mm. ward as okay. well oh. so i had to do everything okay. even though i maybe it's, didn't like yeah. it as much okay. what was your least favorite of all of the <laughs> that things one that, that was the least <laughs> of, why like why, why? Uh, isn't that kind of interesting knowing why i guess it's more health yeah, related it, but it was it was interesting but not as interesting as what I knew the mental health side okay, was. I guess cool. maybe my, I was just very fixated. Mm. Um, I I was also on a post-polio ward, which mm. I thought was interesting as well, because mm. I hadn't really heard about the whole polio stuff. Um, and it was a specialist unit. Um, so, yeah, it, it was my least fa favorite. It wasn't that bad. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't my, my favorite one. And yeah. then. So that my that was my first one. Mm -hmm. My second one was in um, secure mental health services. Okay. So that's essentially like um, a psychiatric hospital, mm. um, but that has a higher level of security because of the mm. risk that the patients have um, yeah. towards other people and also towards themselves. And I okay. really enjoyed it. Did you? Isn't that I, like kind <laughs> of a bit dangerous? You're like, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. There there is a level of risk. Hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. But it is managed um, quite well, I will say. Like, you know, they do review that usually on a daily basis, depending mm -hmm. on how risky that person is. But for me, it was 
just seeing how somebody could be so unwell at the start and through obviously medication, mm. therapy, um, and just input from the whole multidisciplinary team, mm. how they could get to a better place. Yeah. And also it taught me a lot of patience because some people it took them just a couple of months, some people took them years, and then you've got some people who they are very difficult to treat. So like I call them treatment resistant. Mm. Um, so I just found that really fascinating. And then also the fact that they had a forensic history. Mm-hmm. So it just made me think, you know, how, how are the two connected? Mm. And, you know, I wanted to learn more about that. And I told my my university tutor at the time that I really liked it. Um, could you give me another placement like that for my next one? Okay. You don't really get to choose by fortune. You know, let me just yeah. say it. Mm. And for my final placement, they then sent me to Broadmoor Hospital, okay. which is a um, high maximum security hospital, the high one of the highest in the UK. <laughs> I know. My mum was like, edge, right? <laughs> oh my mum was like, what is wrong with this girl? <laughs> <laughs> you know, fair enough, she wants to go into health, but then, fair enough, she wants to go into mental health. And then mm. now this. So, but I was very excited. Mm. I I'd obviously watched the documentary, yeah. Um, but I wanted to find out more because I knew that whatever the media had said about Broadmoor, I knew that there was more to it. Mm. Um, and it ended up being my favorite one. Yeah, my favorite one, and it gave me a whole different perspective on why people go through a the criminal justice system and how people become so unwell. Mm. You know, what do you do with people who are really risky and to the public and also to themselves. What kind of treatment is there available? So I learned a lot. Wow. That's <laughs> so I, was like, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm a thrill seeker. I don't yeah, know what maybe. to call it. I, don't know. <laughs> I just, I'm very curious. Yeah. About, yeah. I mean, and to be honest, I think that's the part of society when we think about psychiatry. I, th- uh, I feel like that's what people think. Mm-hmm. They don't think about the everyday person and mental health. They think, oh, you know, people with serious mental health. I yeah. mean, in your experience there, was it with was it people with serious mental health or was it just people who were with mental health issues but were dangerous? It was a whole spectrum. Okay. Like, you know, okay. um, you know, you'd have like different wards that were separated into like mm. either different levels of risk or they would take on people who were had different types of conditions. So maybe mm. Um, we had like a PD, which is personality disorder mm. uh, unit. And, and then you also had like a psychosis unit as well. Mm. So it really just depends, but you're right. Like there's a whole spectrum of um, mental health conditions mm. that vary in terms of risk. Um, they also vary in terms of uh, reoccurrence as well and how they've come about. Like not all psychosis is drug induced for example it can also be genetic it can be due to trauma like there's just different reasons for for a lot of them um but yeah and that's another thing you know psychiatry is such a it's such a huge and wide thing as well Mm -hmm. and you know you've got people who maybe suffer from anxiety and you've got people who you know maybe suffer from i don't even want to say like a more serious condition because different conditions affect people differently um but it's just a matter of you know how you know they deal with it and also how well they respond to treatment Mm -hmm. that's another thing as well yeah wow you know what is is reminding me of hannibal have you watched have you watched that film hannibal hannibal no you need to watch hannibal what's it what's about it's about it's about a psychologist um interviewing a 
Uh, I think he's a cannibal. I think okay. he's a cannibal. Yeah. All right. <laughs> he's a cannibal. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. he's but he's super intelligent basically. Yeah. And yeah, I don't want to add, that's all I wanted yeah. to. Yeah, okay. yeah, you should. I I'm going to add that to my list because I, 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 I like stuff would, like that. Yeah, that's what it reminds me of, that that kind of conversation. And actually, there's another um, series that I've watched called Mindhunter where I'm pretty sure that. it's the guy. Uh, I think he's a I think he's a psychologist or is he a police officer? He's one of the two. And they just mm. go around interviewing um, criminals to understand what they're their mindset and stuff. Mm. You know, you know what the thing is? I think a lot of people think that with, with uh, people that go into psychologists, they like CSI and, and, yeah. and stuff. I like, I like CSI. I like CSI, CSI as well. Honest, I think um. most people like CSI. <laughs> they glamorize it, right? They make it yeah. seem so cool. Okay, so, um, okay, so you worked in, um, you know, you, you did a, a few placements and then you got into occupational therapy, right? Mm-hmm. After university, right? What does a, you know, give us a bit of a highlight of what a occupational therapist does. Yeah. Um, so an occupational therapist usually is confused with occupational health. It's, it's different. Okay, They're two cool. completely separate things. Like occupational health is more focused on, you know, the workplace, workplace well-being and all that kind of stuff. And even though I guess we do have the skills to work in that type of setting, but occupational therapy refers to supporting people with physical or mental health um, conditions and getting them back into daily life. Um, and it's therapy through activity. So, for example, somebody who might have had a traumatic brain injury, getting them back into, you know, washing and dressing. Um, and then maybe somebody who has a mental health condition um, or a cognitive disorder, getting them back into doing the daily things that they were doing before. And upskilling them in that sense. Okay. Um, we do a lot of uh, functional assessments, mm-hmm. functional capacity assessments, sorry. Um, and we also do other various um, cognitive assessments as part of a wider team. So alongside mm. the psychologists and the psychiatrists and, you know, nurses and whatnot, speech and language therapists. And we work as a team to devise a plan and occupational therapists can work in so many different settings. So, Obviously, hospitals, we can work in schools, prisons. Um, some people work in the army. Okay. So supporting people who may have had like physical health conditions as a result of, I don't know, being deployed and that type of stuff. So the type of role, the sorry, the type of job you can get into is very varied. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to study this course, because mm. just in case I change my mind, okay. at least I can sort of pivot into yeah. different things. But Occupational therapy isn't necessarily known about as much unless you are receiving the treatment or if you, I don't know if you know somebody or if you're quite clued up mm. in terms of the different types of therapy that's wow. available. That's epic. So how did you get into, into, I guess, what was your journey into like, did you just start working for the NHS first and then... Mm. You started going to like prisons and then doing other stuff. Yeah, so I managed to um, reconnect back with my second placement that I did. Mm. And I saw that there was a job vacancy available with the NHS. Mm. Um, But, you you know, were employed by the NHS, but you do have some dealings with like Ministry of Justice. And because I liked the placement, I applied, got the job. And that was my first sort of role um, as an occupational therapist. And you start off as a band five. So once you're qualified, you get your PIN registration. Um, you're qualified to practice as a band five. 
there's about is there nine bandings or eight I can't even remember but you go up you know um the level depending on experience um and you know depending on the role as well our roles can be quite flexible so some occupational therapists work as care coordinators as well so that's essentially care coordinating a person's care mainly in the community so dealing with like medication and all that kind of stuff um so yeah it was a good opportunity to get my feet on the ground I was quite familiar with it had a huge interest and I really enjoyed that role I was Mm. I was at that place for about two years okay yeah wow wow and then and then from there where did you go to was it is that the point that you went to the prisons or um, doing other stuff? No, so before that, I had a short stint in the community as a care coordinator. Okay. I mean, it was okay, but it was, yeah. it was very stressful. I'll be, I'll be honest with you, it was really stressful. And it was also around a time where the pandemic hit okay. wow. as well. So my caseload was massive. Wow. Um, and, you know, the rest of my colleagues, and I just thought, oh, gosh, I can't, I can't do this. You know, I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um. But, you know, I, I I learned a lot. And then afterwards, I went to... What was my job afterwards? I think I went back into secure services and private hospitals as well. Um, and that's when I applied for my role as um, a therapy lead. So, I, you know, I kind of went up the mm. banding. So I applied for the role as a therapy, the occupational therapy lead um, and day centre manager at the prison. Um, and I kind of... You know, before going into prison, I wanted to make sure I had enough experience on the wards mm. and the community because I knew prison. Um, it's not clinical at all. The team is going to be smaller. Um, it's a higher and it's a higher role with more responsibility. So you have to lead a team. So I just wanted to get that experience yeah. first before that. Got the job and yeah, it was just a whole. So it was a whirlwind. It was mm. as much as I prepared for the job. I was still, I still felt a little bit unprepared at the same time because mm. it was such a huge shift mm. from what I was used to. Mm. In what ways? Well, that was my first time in a prison. Okay. <laughs> first of all. Okay. Because um, oh, the other one was, it wasn't a prison. It was like... So a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So even yeah. though like, you know, you, you had um, cer- certain security mm. in psychiatric hospital will still look clinical to you. Yeah. Um, but in prison, like it's it's a prison, mm. um, and you know the, there were so many like gates and all, so many security measures put in place. Okay. That I just thought, gosh, this is this is a lot, um, and it can be also be daunting mm. as well because it was it was massive. Um, but the scariest part for me, which I didn't realize it would be, was going onto the wings, and okay. just seeing so many. So it was a men's prison that I mm. was working at okay. as well. Wow. So. <laughs> I don't know if it makes a difference but yeah it was a yeah. men's prison yeah. um and just seeing that many people in and out and the the wings like the hallway corridor areas are mm. really narrow as mm. well and it's loud there's like bells and alarms like every single second mm. and it was very overwhelming mm. when i first started wow gosh um, how did you do how did you how did you deal with that mm, well, so fair prayer and kind of rethinking like is this really for me um but you know i had a really good manager she was a psychologist yeah. um and we both sort of started around the same time so we kind of were leaning on each yeah. other um and then so i was part of the mental health inpatient team um which is quite a small team so mm-hmm. in the prison you have like a thousand plus prisoners and mm-hmm. you only you focus mainly on those who are obviously at 
a greater risk to themselves and others. Um, so we had a really small team as part of the therapy team. It was just my, it was just myself and the, my ju the junior staff, and I had to essentially build a team. Yeah. Um, they gave me a budget as well to redesign the whole um, therapy center. So okay. I kind of saw it as a fun project at the mm. same time um, until I saw the waiting list of people okay. that needed to be seen. Mm. And I kid you not, it was maybe around 200. Really? And I thought, wow, wow, how am I going to do this? How am I going to prioritize? Wow. So 200 mm. people waiting to come and see you. Waiting, waiting <laughs> oh to be God, assessed. That's crazy. Um, and I saw that wow. that was common across the different disciplines as well, like in mental health. Mm. And I just thought, how are they prioritizing this? And that's when I started to realize just what was going on in mm. the criminal justice system and the lack of funding, the, the shortage of staff and mm. all that kind of stuff and how that's impacting, you know, the wow. prisoners and their, their mental health, yeah. those that needed to be seen. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. I'm wondering, like, in terms of, cause, because that's where you started thinking about neurodiversity, mm. were you coming across many people that had, that was neurodiverse? Is that what was happening? Yeah, absolutely. So people who you know, we thought, you know, from getting to know them and getting to know their history, the type of crime they committed, how they came to that. There were a lot of people who did not have any diagnosis. Mm. So uh, that was quite difficult because, you know, to get a diagnosis for ADHD or AC or some of the other ones, it takes a long time, right? Mm. So a lot of time it was just looking at someone and just seeing how they behave, hearing mm. feedback from the officers, and actually saying, okay, I think this person might have this. Like, we need to explore mm. this further. Okay. And I saw a lot of that. A lot of people who did not have any diagnosis whatsoever mm. and obviously didn't have the right support before coming in. Okay. Um, and it wasn't just to do with um, neurodiversity. It was also, like, mm. mental health. And with, I'm talking about maybe depression, anxiety, underlying stuff that hadn't really been looked at before mm. coming into prison wow. was a lot of the time which led them to come to prison really? and committing their crime okay that's crazy that's not fair though is it of course know. not yeah, of, no of not course fair, not and there's a huge gap you know from it stems so far back from even in school mm. you know the type of people who you know in most schools like those who had challenging behaviors mm. usually are excluded or um sent to like pru so people mm. referral unit and you know they talk about the whole um school to prison pipeline mm. so usually that's where it stems from and um you know some people get the right support earlier on and mm. some people just don't yeah um and i found that there was a huge um disparity between even the the black and ethnic minority patients that I had mm. compared to, let's say, the white counterparts. Mm. Um, so usually with the black patients, I would see through the history that, you know, they were excluded, involved in gang-related crimes and all that kind of stuff, and not much input in terms of their mental health or support for those behavioral challenges compared to, um, you know, the white counterparts. Not mm. to say that it's not there, but it was just more prevalent in mm. um, the black and ethnic communities that I was seeing on my caseload. Mm. So I know that there are still mm. huge gaps in early intervention yeah. and just the right support that are provided for these people. Yeah. Um, and 
it's not to say that this is why somebody commits a crime and mm. you know it's justified no it's not justified but it at least gives you a sense of how people get into those type of conditions yeah i guess obviously you can never say on the record it can completely be prevented but there's a chance that it could be prevented if they get the support if there's somebody talking to them about what what is the issue right because i guess when somebody's misbehaving it's kind of like just punishment they just get a punishment oh mm. you're in detention yeah there's no what's going on what's going on at home what's going on outside of home who mm. are you hanging out with is none of that kind of stuff right yeah. the intervention doesn't go that far it doesn't seem yeah right, does it and i suppose i can't really blame anyone um in terms of let's say the teachers for example because they're under enormous mm. amount of stress yeah, already of yeah it's not you know job, and yeah. then having to put another hat on in terms mm. of looking at you know whether somebody's mental health and of course you do have a responsibility to some extent mm. like maybe safeguarding um and stuff like that but absolutely i you can't it's like a domino effect, right? So if somebody is continuously misbehaving um, and the underlying problem mm. isn't being looked at or at least a point of discussion. So for example, you might have some young people who are homeless. Mm. They haven't got a home. They're coming into school looking all scruffy and everything, mm. um, getting involved in you know criminal activity and it's not being addressed. As that person becomes older and they continue that type of cycle usually the crimes then become bigger and bigger, okay. you know? Um, and I would say it's not that it's too late as you get older, but it's mm. much harder to undo all of those like cycles. It's much easier to, that's what I'm talking about in terms of early intervention. It's much easier to kind of nip it in the bud and mm. support a person at an earlier stage. Mm. Um, but again, with funding, lack of staffing, mm. It's really, I would say, the government that has a huge part to play in this yeah. and what they're willing to invest in yeah. as well. So, yeah. Do you feel like if people are um, receptive, I mean, mm -hmm. the patients that you've seen that have been receptive to like therapy, have you seen a, I guess, a meaningful change in, in them that mm. you, that, yeah, from your perspective? Yeah, so for those, like you said, for those who are, because there's a huge <laughs> amount of people who aren't. Bad man don't need therapy, right? You know, and, you know, for various reasons, maybe they just don't believe in therapy yeah. or they, they don't, <laughs> you've got some people who don't even believe that they have a mental health condition because of, you know, the stereotypes attached mm. to it. They don't want to know. I remember, like, during the first couple of weeks when I started, actually, I think it was even throughout, but I really noticed it like during the start when I would come onto the wings, you know, I'd have like my lanyard that says mm. NHS on it. And, you know, they tell me to go to whatever cell and I'd go to them. Some some of them wouldn't want to look at me. They're like, go away, go away. That's mm. because they're maybe embarrassed mm. to kind of have some of their mates know that they're being seen by me, okay. by mental health. Yeah. You know, and then you've got some people who Stick really wanted on. that because they wanted to get out of the wings. Yeah. Um, but... What was, that? what was the question? I forgot. It was, um, have you, for the, you know, your patients, uh, you know, in the prison that were receptive to the therapy, did you see that meaningful change? Yes, um, I did, but slow. And, and yeah. also, I say slow because everyone works at different pace. Um, 
And also I found that because we're all so different, different types of therapy suited people differently as well. So I'm an, as an occupational therapist, your our type of therapy is mm -hmm. more like activity based. It's more practical. Mm -hmm. um, even our assessments are, it's very practical. Um, so I found that a lot of people are more receptive to that because mm -hmm. it wasn't like talking therapy like CPT mm -hmm. as such. Like there is an element of talking, but not as much as like mm -hmm. uncovering like some of the trauma and talking them through that. Um, so I've definitely found a lot of successes in that and also supporting people, like I said, you know, earlier on who didn't have a diagnosis mm. and supporting them through the diagnosis process, creating commu um, communication packs mm. with maybe the speech and language therapist to help them, um, you know, cope within the prison setting, um, and, you know, you could really see the change, even like in terms of risk, mm. less incidences, less time spent in maybe segregation as they would before. And just even like, you know, being out in the community later on, yeah. um, you know, I'd work with the community team quite closely as well and trying to con help them continue that support because it doesn't just end in prison. And, mm. you know, a lot of the time people are essentially sent out, you know, yeah. they're released from prison and then that's that. and that's where you see the the recalls or the reoffending when yeah. there isn't the right support in the community as well. So I definitely found a lot of successes, but I would say mental health, it tends to be slower because mm. people work at different paces. Yeah. Incredible. And that was, was that the inspiration for the TED talk that you're experiencing your time in the prison and obviously. Yeah. You know, great TED talk, by the way, everybody should go and uh, <laughs> uh, watch it. I don't want to obviously spoil it. I think you should. I think you should go and watch it. Um, but you. was that the inspiration for? Yeah, it was a, that. That was a huge inspiration, and also, um, even though I knew I wanted to to work in mental health, mm. I still had, you know, my own internal biases around, uh, not just mental health, but people who had committed certain criminal offences, mm. right? And to work in mental health or even the forensic setting you do have to have a degree of empathy mm. to be able to support these type of people. Um, and I often would say that it kind of messed up with that, my, um, I guess my my moral, you know, what I thought was, you know, right and wrong at times. Mm. Um, and I had always tried to separate the person from the crime they had committed, especially if it was a high profile crime, which we got a lot of those things. Mm. Um, so that talk was also centered around, you know, empathy, which doesn't always mean agreeing with somebody, but actually understanding how they got to that point, understanding their journey. Um, so it, it definitely made me more of an empathetic person, mm. um, very patient mm -hmm. and just being able to compartmentalize yeah. the crime, the mental health and the person. Yeah. Yeah. I like I like the talk because exactly like you were saying, empathy it, it was an open question. I was like, oh, I mean, okay, I'm not going to sp spoil it completely. But the question was around having empathy for people who have committed crimes, right? Yeah. And um, I think a lot of people do find that difficult. Yeah. Again, depending on what level of of of, of crime that is. Why, why, why do you think we, we're like that? Why do you think we lack that empathy for somebody who is 
commit whatever crime it is or like and we kind of almost look down on them in a way sometimes it makes us uncomfortable mm. you know to i guess be maybe face to face or close to somebody who's committed a certain crime which you deem as mor- morally wrong um certain stereotypes and biases that you might already have in your mind about people who've committed crimes like especially people who have committed reoccurring crimes and always find themselves in and out of prison usually those are the people who get left behind they're like you know there's no hope for them mm. there there's nothing you can do with that person um so there's a lot of different factors as to why people might not they might initially think and i'm sure they do have empathy to a certain degree but it's also it's always it always depends on the situation and what you know you're having empathy for so it doesn't take away from just because you're not maybe empathetic to to a certain situation or a person it doesn't make you an unempathetic person mm. um it just really depends on the situation but it's more about you know being open-minded and willing to to learn and just willing to listen yeah that's you know all it really takes just just listen and whether you agree or disagree with the situation or with the person's actions that's fine you've got that right to to think that way mm. but just just listen and allow somebody to tell their story mm. wow yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine a lot of people are listening like yeah that, that, that's that not, is very it, tough it's not, it's not for everyone yeah, yeah it isn't but i think i think if anybody says again i'm not i don't want to judge anybody but if anybody's saying they're a, a good person then i think that if you're saying you're a good person, then I think you should be able to empathize with people, not only just the good people, mm-hmm. but empathize with people who, okay, yeah, they might have done bad things, but underst- like you said, understand the reasons behind yeah. why they why they did uh, bad things. Uh, another thing that you talked about, and we didn't actually mention what that was, we, we, we spoke about it a little bit, neurodivergent. What does that actually mean when you say neurodivergent? Yeah, yeah. so with neurodiversity or like I, I like to sort of refer to it as a neurodevelopmental condition because it's a condition where the brain, the chemical changes in the brain don't necessarily line up um, and it can cause, you know, people to react differently in terms of their surroundings, in terms of how they process things. So um, it's just how the brain processes information and process it, processes it differently to somebody else who might find it easier to carry out certain tasks. Um, and I know we mentioned um, autism, so ASD and ADHD as well, which most people know about. But there are many other different types of conditions like discal- dyscalculia, I think I'm saying that right. So that's essentially um, finding it difficult to process like numbers. Um, then you have dyspraxia, which is more about like, you know, balance and um, even memory loss as well. So there's different neurodevelopmental conditions and even though people talk about I think it's great people are talking about neurodiversity which is great but I don't know if it's as easily accepted just yet Mm -hmm. um maybe because more recently more people have come out about being neurodivergent and also it looks differently on other yeah. people like some people they might find it hard to concentrate and then you've got another person saying oh well I find it hard to concentrate does that mean that I have 
ADHD <laughs> and you know like something silly as that and yeah. the process to be diagnosed yeah as someone who's got um ADHD it, it's a long process mm. you know it's usually How done by a set at? I would say it takes a couple of I mean like if you're going privately it can be quicker so it maybe takes a couple of weeks okay so you've got Private I think though. a couple of hours of um the actual you know questioning with you and the psychiatrist or it can mm. be a psychologist as well and then they formulate the report they get a background they maybe speak to family members yeah. so there's a lot of work that gets into it and they don't just dish out like mm. they shouldn't dish out diagnosis just like that um so it takes a lot to be that but then you've got people who self-diagnose as well mm. which is a whole controversial thing as well yeah i suppose where i stand with that is because it's so hard to get a diagnosis because of the waiting list mm. and because it's so expensive if you go privately so it costs mm. like thousands of pounds i'm not mad at people finding out more about you know the experiences and mm -hmm. how you know maybe some of the struggles that they're facing and maybe sharing that amongst each other i'm not mad at that um but of course like to actually get a diagnosis it should be properly done mm. and sometimes it can be dangerous as well because you might diagnose yourself with something but it could be completely it could be something else mm. you know you just never know mm. um so i guess i'm split in the middle with yeah. that um, why are they not doing these diagnoses like as like very early they do all these health kind of things on us when we're babies check yeah. for if we've got diseases check if our heart is fine but why don't they do the mental of course, yeah, as a baby, you might not know. But when we get to a certain age, why don't they just do something mandatory to be like, okay, let me check for this. Let me check for that. Yeah. So, well, t two things. Usually neurodevelopmental conditions are usually spotted, you know, earlier on in childhood. Mm. And they should be. Mm. Um, uh, oftentimes they can be missed because mm. of, you know, various reasons, maybe the young child might be masking their condition. Mm. So that masking usually refers to somebody who's, you know, I wouldn't say hiding, but you using alternative ways to combat their condition. So mm. maybe they're, you know, you've got some people who might write things down all the time. They're struggling, but they're not necessarily telling people that mm. they're struggling. They're okay. having like post-it notes everywhere and all mm, jumbled up, <laughs> you know? So you've got that. Um, but it's, it's much harder, I think, to, for people to even accept a diagnosis later mm. on in age, because then you've got that, from what I hear, you've got that, um, I guess, level of either guilt or of resentment, mm -hmm. you know, feeling that you struggled all your life. Um, mm. So I do understand that side of things. Um, but do you know what? Another thing is a lot of health professionals, a lot of them don't know too much about neurodiversity. They're not yeah. always trained in that okay. sense, even doctors yeah. at times. Yeah. So you do, you know, have to do extra training for that. Mm. So at times, that's why maybe when you go to a GP and mm. you discuss like certain, you know, issues that you're facing, it might not necessarily pick, be picked up as easily yeah. because they might just not know, you know. Mm. Um, and like I said, with neurodiversity, it's being spoken about now, but it's only more recently that it's being taken as seriously, yeah. you know, as it should be. Um, yeah. And oftentimes people focus on those who might be on the spectrum where, 
you can clearly see that there's something wrong, like maybe someone with autism, but you've got people who are functioning better, even with the with autism, compared to others who you can actually quite tell. Yeah. Like it's like a different level of like autism and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know what, it's, it's funny you say that because neurodiversity, the term, that term, I only heard about it this year, but I've heard of ADHD, I've heard of autism. Not that I knew like a lot about it, and I think it's like you say, I think it's something that people were still learning. And I think we're still learning society that some of us may have it. Yeah. We don't even know we have it. And then can we even diagnose it? Is there like a really accurate way to diagnose it? Yeah. Um, as well. It seems like it's a little bit a little bit tough. Um, in terms of bridging that gap, right, in you know, neurodiversity, what I guess what can what how should we be um in a way when we're you know, trying to figure out if somebody has those challenges and we want to understand that a little bit more. Yeah, um, I think educate education is key. So educating yourself in terms of, you know, what kind of conditions are out there and how they present. Um, and this is more for, actually it's for everyone. I was going to say professionals, but actually it could be for, for anyone. Um, just to have a bit of knowledge, even if it's just, a basic amount of knowledge on the different types of conditions so that you're able to then signpost, you know, the person to the right place. Um, education in various spaces, so even the workplace as well, um, in schools, supporting teachers with maybe the extra training or supporting school to, supporting school, schools with, um, you know, having more specialist support in there. Um, and then I would also say targeting communities who maybe just don't know anything about that. Um, and I'm talking about communities, maybe, like I said, I'm Nigerian. Mm. And if I say, I know if I talk to some family members and I talk to them about neurodiversity, they're going to look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> I mean, they're just trying to wrap their head around mental health. But now I bring in neurodiversity. Um, and you know what? You'd be very surprised with how many of the older generation, Afro-Caribbean um, generation, and even other cultures as well, where our parents, grandparents, might have traits of neurodiversity, 100%. right? And I give a good ex I'll give you an example of um, a patient, and quite a few patients, but there's one lady I was working with. She was from Congo, and um, she she was in the community but she she came into hospital because she had a relapse in her mental health mm -hmm. so when we're trying to get her back into the community into her own flat yeah. with a good package of care you know some mental health support it was time to go into her flat and it was an estate you had like you know suitcases everywhere and you know it was clear that this lady had a hoarding problem mm. and actually there are i don't know the actual stats but especially when it comes to afro-caribbean um, households you will find that it's more of a problem in mm. terms of hoarding right <laughs> and you know there are different levels you're laughing no <laughs> even look I, even I, I hear it i hear it <laughs> I, I mean i've seen it <laughs> yeah and if you even want to dig about that if you want to dig deeper mm. um a lot of the time there's a psychological element to it as well. So when we're talking about trauma and some of the things that our parents, grandparents and, you know, whoever generations above have had to deal with where perhaps maybe they didn't have much growing up. So now that they have, it's not even a lot, but now that they have something, 
to get rid of it is difficult. Mm -hmm. To not have it, it perhaps triggers them in in a way that they might not recognize as something psychological. Mm -hmm. You know, so when I read about that and I then saw that in my practice, mm -hmm. that again made me more vocal, especially when, you know, advocating for my black and ethnic minority patients mm -hmm. and actually stating like, no, this is a hoarding problem. Let's get them the clinical help to support them in that sense. Um, but then also being more empathetic again yeah. towards, you know, family members, the older generation where, you know, usually I'd be like shouting saying, oh, why can't we throw this away? Why is everything so cluttered? Mm. And really just taking time, not necessarily to unpack, but just to be patient yeah. with them. Wow. So uh, <laughs> you that's know, I a... never thought about the hoarding thing, but <laughs> yeah. wow. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is, oh God, that is right in the culture. Think. Yeah. Yeah. What are the reasons for that? And you know, fleeing, leaving another country, like you said, coming, maybe immigrating and not having much. And then when you have stuff, you... Yeah. Yeah, that is... Yeah, that, that is crazy. It's a whole <laughs> lot to unpack. Yeah, makes you think. Wow. Um. So, so something else that I kind of stumbled on a few years ago, right? And I don't... Maybe, maybe I've missed this. I haven't seen a lot of people talk about it and it was a seasonal affective disorder, right? And that's, you know... Um, known as SAD. Yeah. <laughs> Great name, right? <laughs> um, for those that don't know what that is, what is um, seasonal affective disorder? Mm -hmm. um, and I guess what symptoms does somebody experience when they get seasonal affective disorder? So seasonal affective disorder is a, is a type of depression mm -hmm. that usually comes around, you know, certain seasons um, more specifically and more commonly um, autumn, winter times, you know, where the days are shorter, there's less sunlight, gets colder, people are indoors more. So people tend to suffer from seasonal affective disorder during those times and those periods during the year. Um, I, I suppose there is more research into that now, but in terms of the clinical side of things, I mean, there would still it's still under the umbrella of depression. Mm. Um, so you would treat it as as that, but um, there are more specialists now treating seasonal affective disorder separately. And the type of symptoms that people who have that usually face is irritability during those periods, um, isolation. So again, because they're indoors mm. more often, maybe because it's cold or people tend to stay inside during those seasons anyway. Um, lack of sleep, sometimes oversleeping. Um, it can affect your your appetite. So people maybe tend to eat more, or they tend to eat less. So it really varies from person to person. And again, like in terms of the evidence for it, like um, from what I've read, it could be due to the lack of sunlight. So the lack of vitamin D, um, you know, serotonin or melatonin, which looks at the, the hormone imbalance, um, and because there is a hormone imbalance, it then affects the mood. Mm. So with SAD, it really, it really depends on how often it occurs. Mm. So if this is something that's really consistent, then, you know, I guess you would know that you've got seasonal affective disorder. Mm. Um, but like I said, in terms of treatments, they, it, it would usually be along the same lines of treatment that you would have mm. for depression. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. yeah. It's something that I heard and I was like, that makes sense. Yeah. Winter, yeah. Well, you know, I think I think people's moods are 
generally I think is less than is probably you know not as high as summer when yeah, it's yeah. summer everybody I feel like everybody's popping everybody's Everyone's, excited yeah, oh, I want to yeah. be out on a but when it's winter it's a little bit more let's say dull not that people are not out but the mood the general mood is dull yeah. and actually it's probably it's probably linked to that yeah and it's also a time where people are reflecting more it's mm. coming towards the end of the year mm-hmm. you're now starting to think about the new year's resolutions that you had or the goals that you had at the mm. start of the year and maybe if you haven't achieved certain things like those type of type of thoughts start to increase more and now you're thinking about the next year is what well, it's only a couple of weeks away you know so um there's a whole whole lot of things that or a whole lot of factors that are put into play when it yeah. comes to that yeah yeah there was another thing that i was thinking about right um as as i was thinking about this you know conversation i was going to have with you and it dawned on me that we have a huge after <laughs> after works drinks culture in oh, the UK. <laughs> tell me about it. It's huge, right? Yeah. So I guess from your point of view, being a therapist, right? You know, being a person that studies the mind, I guess, why do you think that is the case? And I guess, what's the impact of that being the case, you know, on, on, our, on our mental health? Yeah. yeah. I think just innately as human beings, we were made to want to be around people, made to, you know, socialize. And, you know, that's what we do. Obviously, you have some people who are more introverted than others, but essentially people want to be around people. Um, And that lack of socialization can impact, you know, your mental health in a negative way. And that's why even during the pandemic, you saw a lot of people, start to have more mental health problems um if they had some if if they didn't have before they would you know have them now because we were so isolated um not just from people but also from activities that were meaningful to us Mm -hmm. um so we would in in my line of work we would call that occupational deprivation yeah you know so but in terms of the the work drinks as well like you said it's definitely a very british thing but if we look at the psychology of that Essentially, it's just wanting to be around people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's said that a lot of our, the chemicals in our brain are increased f- through being around people. Mm-hmm. And it can definitely help mm-hmm. in terms of having a good mental health, but also getting people into a routine of seeing people. Now, like I said, for various reasons, whether you're introverted or mm-hmm. you might have social, social anxiety, that might not always work for you. Mm-hmm. I know for myself, I don't always enjoy going to the pub afterwards. And I don't know, maybe that's culturally, like in my culture, like what, why are we going to the pub all the time for? But then for other people, it's it's a thing that, you know, makes them happy and it makes them feel that they've got something to do after work, makes them feel fulfilled. So it really just depends. But yeah, there's we, we are definitely social creatures. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I completely, I completely agree. We definitely, we definitely are, and actually, that that would make sense to be fair. Why yeah. some some people are so so keen, and actually working from home, I think the flip side of work from home, like you said, is that yeah, people do have that, they do feel that isolation as well when they're not connecting with their colleagues and they're just speaking to them yeah. over a Teams call or or, or Zoom chat. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking about, right, was um, there's this weird thing that happens where as somebody is on the rise, like we're supporting a creator or we're supporting somebody starting a business or maybe an up, up and coming actor, 
we we're very supportive of them on the way up but when they get there it's like we almost not everybody mm-hmm. but i would say people start wishing for their downfall yeah. i'm trying to understand why does that happen why is it because they don't wish for their downfall when they're up and coming mm. in fact it's more like almost pity it's almost like oh i'm wearing for you i want you to succeed and mm. when you succeed is like envy okay you yeah. need to fail i wanna you know all of that why why does yeah. that happen what's, what's that, that um saying you know you, i don't even know what they're saying is but essentially a lot of people um want people to do well especially if it's their friends and family mm. members or if you if you've come from a certain area that you, same area sorry that you can relate to in terms of that person you know succeeding in their success um but once they start to do better than you or maybe achieving some of the things that you have on your goals list or your wish list to do they like you said there can be an element of envy jealousy but also reflecting on yourself and thinking that oh why am I not there yet Mm. you know why haven't I achieved this like didn't we grow up in the same area aren't we the same age or I might you know maybe you're older than the person like you know you see all these young people who are becoming more successful quickly especially on social media Um, and some people might feel envious of Mm. that because maybe they've had to go through that traditional route of getting a job a nine to five going to uni and all that kind of stuff so it really is a a personal thing and it might just be also how you view yourself and how much you're impacted by others other people's journey Mm. and I but I also I always say that for me anyway envy sometimes is good because sometimes Mm. it can push you and make you more motivated Mm -hmm. to to work for you know whatever you want to reach but when it crosses over to let's say jealousy or then it's impacting how you interact with somebody especially your friends mm. like you said supporting them less um it can create that friction in terms of relationships mm. and it, it'll do more harm than it does any good it doesn't do any good not just for that person but also for yourself so it's always good to sort of when, when you catch yourself um because it can be a natural thing and i'm sure most people have felt that uh, when you catch yourself maybe acting a little bit different or maybe not being as supportive to somebody like you usually would it's always good to self-reflect and actually think why is this happening where's this stemming from um so that could look like journaling speaking to someone i i speak to friends all the time and we're all you know we're all doing different things um in terms of career so it's always good to kind of look back and reflect um because it could be you on the other end where you're successful now and maybe you're surpassing some of your friends, um, whether that's, you know, financially, it could be career-wise, whatever, you might have a, a whole different experience. And, you know, how would you feel if your friends are supporting you less? And people notice, you know, people really do notice as much as, you know, you get your accolades from other people. Most people the, the people that they want to hear from or they, that they value in terms of their opinion the most are from their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, 100%. 100%, right? So yeah. it's like, I know I do. Like as, as much as I'm, you know, speaking sometimes to lots of people, I'm always looking out for my friends mm. and whatever they say, 
you know, obviously we're taking with a pinch of salt as well, mm. but you know, I, it adds a lot more value, but yeah. it definitely happens. Yeah. And it's natural, mm. I, you know, it's natural. It's just how you deal with it. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I completely, completely agree. And I think it's, 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 it's interesting. It's interesting because I think like, like you said, I think it's the natural thing to do is compare yourself to s somebody that you, you, you might not even know them mm. and you still have that that envy for them. It's very easy to compare and be like, well, a few years ago, we were at the same level and they were upcoming. I was supporting them, but now they're, they're way ahead of me. Yeah. Um, another thing linked to that is I feel like as a society, you know, famous people, high profile people, you know, they're, they're famous and they're high profile for, for, for a reason. A lot of people follow them. I feel like we're getting to a point where we're very... A lot of these people, we don't, again, talking on the um, topic of empathy, we kind of lack that empathy for them. Mm. Again, why do you think that is happening with these, again, with these really high profile people? Why do you think we lack, lack empathy for them? Is it just because we just see them through a screen and it's like, okay, we don't really personally know them. So yeah. whatever. I mean, for a lot of them, you know, for a lot of people, it doesn't have to be, famous people celebrities but they you know people especially on social media tend to only show like the good sides mm. on social media right and there are a lot of high profile people who might be struggling whether that's mentally or like other things are happening in their lives that we as the people who maybe look up to them in terms of their success and whatnot might not always be privy to that um I also feel like because of how social media is um, and the connection between those who are high profile and let's say their audience, sometimes the, the lines are blurred um, in terms of the audience maybe having more access mm. to said celebrity or high profile person. Um, so it's almost like they feel entitled, you know? So yes, you're complaining about you know what happened to you last week maybe even something as serious as like oh they got into a car crash but what it wasn't a range rover or yeah. you know you've got all the money or you've got private health insurance or you know so there's always i suppose a caveat as to why people shouldn't be as empathetic towards that person because maybe they're just looking at their success and almost not even seeing them as a human being anymore mm. and that's the dangerous thing because they are human beings at the end of the day mm. Um, it's just that we don't know their full sto story as much as we research them, as much as, you know, they're online most of the time. Like I said, people only show you what they want you to see. Mm. They won't show you them crying or being bankrupt and all that mm. kind of stuff. Most of the time they won't. Mm. So I think the the entitlement mm. um, causes people to be less empathetic towards people who are high profile and they think, well, You've got all the money that sells everything yeah. when it doesn't always it helps. Agree. Absolutely. It helps. But yeah. <laughs> so in terms of tips, I wanted to, you know, end it off with some tips, you know, obviously therapy is obviously a great way to, you know, help improve your mental health. But outside of therapy, what are, what are some things that someone can do to, you know, help improve mm -hmm. their mental health? I would say keep yourself busy with, things that are meaningful to you and don't necessarily put too much pressure on you so you always hear about people saying oh find a hobby or find something you know you can do outside of let's say your nine to five or your you know what you do for work um 
But it doesn't have to be anything serious. It could literally be something like watching a Netflix show or a series or whatnot. Like it doesn't have to be that. Um, going out for walks helps as well. Um, or going out to do exercise. I play tennis just for fun. I'm not the greatest, but you know I still play. Um, seeing friends. So like I said, we are social creatures. So even if it's seeing friends in person or speaking to friends on the phone, um someone that you can kind of sound off from um and also even journaling so even self-reflecting on you know why you're thinking the way that you're you know thinking and almost like because a lot of the time once you write things down you're actually able to really see clearly you know where those those thoughts come from and obviously it's not to say that you should be your own therapist Mm -hmm. but it's good to have that written out um you know, um, and it could be in the form of writing or some people yeah. like to, you know, record themselves and whatnot. I've heard of some creative ways. So essentially it's about keeping yourself, I don't, yeah, busy, but obviously not to the extent where you're overloading yourself, yeah. um, but ensuring that there is purpose outside of just chasing the money, chasing mm. the success, because it's it's up and down. You know, what's going to happen when you're in that down moment, you know, when which happens to a lot of successful people? What else can you do to support your mental health apart from, you know, obviously seeking professional support if it gets to that point? Um, so those I would say those are the, the tips. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Jenny, it's been a, such an insightful conversation. Uh, I had so yeah. many more questions oh. <laughs> that I definitely <laughs> want to speak to you yeah. about. And I definitely want to do like a part two um because i feel like it's an important conversation and there's so many areas that i want to like discuss um i guess what what do you have planned next for for yourself Mm, what do i have planned so um next year i'll be working on a documentary okay wow uh congratulations can i say so much about it Um, thank you (laughs) (laughs) but it'll be around like some of the things that we've we've mentioned um and you know i'll obviously continue to you know showcase what I do for work and like I said at the start you know I'm really passionate about ensuring that we are talking more about mental health within the black community um and ensuring that the right resources are there for those who have mental health conditions or neurodevelopmental conditions so I'm you know going to be doing more of that um what else have I got coming up I suppose you know with my business Sasa um, that's growing as well. So like I said, I do a lot of initial assessments mm-hmm. for these neurodevelopmental conditions. Mm-hmm. And again, trying to bridge that gap between those who can, can't access it um, for various reasons. So I'm, I'm out and about and, wow. you know. <laughs> yeah. And where can people find you if they want to, obviously if they wanted to check out Sasa to obviously, you know, diagnose themselves and, you know, just like mm-hmm. hear more from you and see you know follow your content so for sasa you can go on our website which is www.wearesasa.com and you can find me on linkedin so jenny okolo um social so instagram jen okolo i get a lot of people who are just intrigued to learn more about just mental health or certain conditions and obviously i don't you know offer clinical support via these platforms mm-hmm. Um, but it's always great to have like discussions like that. I'm yeah. always willing to have a chat with someone because um, I could go on and on, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you think that would be something that you may offer in the future? It's just like, yeah, I've got all these business ventures right now. Yeah, got, I mean, yeah. I suppose because I, I still have my nine to five yeah. where I do that. And, you know, like I said, around balance, I'm trying yeah. to, you know, make sure I dedicate enough time to focus on other endeavors, but I'm also just focus on myself and ensure that I practice what I preach. Mm. Yeah, you keep don't. doing, keep doing <laughs> your thing. Keep doing what you're Thank doing. You. It's amazing work. Um, it's very needed work, and um, you know, very happy that that you that we had this conversation today because Likewise. I think it's a very very important conversation. I want to have more of these, yeah. you know, kind of conversations, and also just delve into the areas that we don't talk a lot about because neurodiversity like like you said the obvious ones are adhd mm -hmm. but you know calculus and then there was another one that you mentioned yeah these things are not things that people think so actually numbers are, you know when people say i'm not good at numbers maybe mm. actually it is actually a legit thing right be something that, you know it's not yeah. a oh you can just work hard and get through it it might actually be mm -hmm. a legit thing so yeah such an important uh, conversation do you have any uh, yeah. final words for the audience yeah, I mean, I just want to say thank you for, for having me on here. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, there's so many other topics, you know, around mental health, like even finance and how that impacts mental health and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, essentially it's for people, my message is for people to try and be empathetic. Just listen. Like I said, you don't have to necessarily agree with the action or, you know, you know what the person's done or how they came to that point. But it's just about listening and you'd re really be surprised with how much you can learn um from just hearing a person's story amazing yeah. uh, that's a great great way to to end yeah. it off uh watchers listeners thanks for tuning into this episode of the podcast and we'll see you next week yeah.